I thought ballerinas were so beautiful. And mm. in a way, I didn't want to be, and this is like some of that internalized sexism, but I didn't want to be like a girly girl. But at the same time, there's this femininity that ballerinas exude, this grace and beauty that is supposed to be completely easy. Like you don't have to try while underneath they're trying so hard. And there's something about that that was super alluring. And also just the beauty of the movement and and the feeling of dancing is so great. And I definitely watched dance movies as a kid. I watched The Turning Point, Center Stage, Save the Last Dance. It was fun to watch dancer characters who are, you know, maybe 17 enter a professional space and be taken seriously at like the highest level. So there's something about that that's really enthralling. This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen, and I too was enthralled by ballet growing up. I made my stage debut in kindergarten, and I still remember the thrill of stepping into my first tutu and also the itch of the silver sequin choker that I had to wear as part of my costume. I don't think I had any delusions of becoming a prima ballerina or anything like that. I was mostly in it for the point shoes and friends. This episode, though, we are focusing on elite ballet, black swan level ballet, and the power dynamics that classical ballerinas have danced up against for centuries. Ballet originated in the royal courts of Renaissance Italy and France, but it wasn't until the dance boom of the 1960s and 70s that American girls really started flocking to studios. This is one of the most prestigious schools in the country, the American Ballet Theater of New York. 200 young people have come here to audition for a place in the school. They come from all over the country, all with the same idea to one day become a premier dancer in New York, the major league of ballet. There is only the smallest chance that any of them will. If you've got 100 uh, applicants in here, you might accept, what, 20? About 20, 15 to 20. 15 to 20. And then of the 15 to 20, two or three make it with... Yeah, make it in a big company. Perhaps one out of several hundred will be a ballerina, prima ballerina. Two or three will be soloists, and perhaps five or six will be in a corps de ballet, and some may just stop midway in their education, their dance education. And what do the rest do? Well, they, they give up. Our first guest, Erica Lance, knows that high-stakes ballet culture well. She's the host and producer of one of the most anticipated podcasts of 2023, The Turning Room of Mirrors. In it, she excavates ballet's complex hierarchies, body issues, and all-in devotion that captivates aspiring ballerinas. And as Erica uncovers in The Turning, those themes in the broader ballet world all reverberate from the father of American ballet himself, George Balanchine. 
but we'll get into those daddy issues a little later. You know, once we've done a few warm-up stretches at the bar. My whole working memory, I was in love with ballet. I think I was dancing as a toddler or almost pre-toddling. I think my parents did take me to the Nutcracker when I was around three, two or three, and I was totally enamored. So I started taking classes when I was three. Tell me a little bit then about the studio environment and ballet culture that you grew up in. Well, a lot of it was just super fun. I loved to dance. Mm -hmm. I loved that I felt like my teachers took me really seriously. And like we weren't just there for for fun. We were there because we cared about art and we wanted to get really good at this art form. And I loved the high standards and the intensity. And I loved performing and getting to prepare for performances. It's just so fun. And I loved the perfectionism of it. And looking back now and working on this project, I've started to think more about some of the messages I was receiving in the classroom that I wasn't necessarily aware of at the time. And I think one is that traditionally in ballet classrooms, you you really don't talk. It's like the students mm. are silent and the teacher is talking and all eyes are on the teacher and they're the voice of wisdom for you. You trust everything they say and you are doing everything you can to please them. I, I want to get into the turning because in season two, you were telling a very specific story about ballet or a very specific ballet story. What is it and why this story in particular? Hmm. I think initially I wanted to explore ballet more generally and I had a lot of ideas of different directions we can go. And I was actually a little concerned focusing on Balanchine and the New York City Ballet because they get so much attention and they're really centered in our cultural awareness of ballet. I read this amazing writing by someone named Adeshola Akinle, who's a ballet dancer, teacher, scholar. And she was writing about how, I'm probably going to butcher this, but basically this idea that ballet is like a manor house and there's ballet happening in the great hall of this house. And there's also dance happening in all the other rooms. But it's like everyone's focusing on the great hall and not all the other rooms. Ballet is such a big world. So it's like why give more time and space to these these like elite institutions that already get like an inordinate amount of attention. But I think that we realized the story of George Balanchine and his legacy and his impact on dancers through till today was a great way to help give context to listeners who aren't actually that intimately familiar with ballet culture and, and how ballet works. Balanchine is kind of like Shakespeare of ballet. Like people mm. go to the ballet to see a Balanchine ballet. He's like one of those things that companies want to put on because people want to see his work. And so his art is just everywhere. But one thing we're looking at is a lot of people see his preference for certain types of bodies really coming to define what is expected of a ballerina's body and especially like extreme thinness because that sort of desire for thinness and that sort of fat phobia 
didn't exist to that extent through all ballet history. And it got more refined in like the 60s and the 70s through Balanchine's work. And that's that's a little hard to pin down and put all on Balanchine, but I think there is a thread there that's important. Yeah, and I and I'm going to ask specifically about the Balanchine body. But first, I could spend like two hours just like <laughs> unpacking his famous quote, ballet is woman. Mm. So what did he mean by that? Mm. Ballet is woman. He, he loved women. That's something everyone will tell you. He thought their bodies were beautiful. He loved how they smelled. Attraction to women is very much in, in his work. A lot of his ballets have this erotic tinge to them that it, at times was kind of revolutionary. And he saw them as muses for his work. He, he thought that ballerinas, female dancers, could do things aesthetically that men just couldn't do. And so that's who he loved choreographing for the most. There were some men he choreographed for, but really it was the women. And in that sense, a lot of his dancers felt like he was a great feminist because he gave them starring roles. The company revolved around them. They were clearly like the important people on the stage. He gave them agency at times because he would be working with them and their individual, what they bring to the table. He wanted to find their personal characteristics and bring them to life in his choreography. And they felt seen in that sense. And it felt like this close artistic relationship. At the same time, he had very old and conservative ideas about gender roles. And it seems that really this respect for women had to do very specifically with ballet. And he said that in other realms, in other areas, it's men who are in charge. Men are the choreographers. Men are the writers. Men are the leaders, that kind of thing. But in this one rarefied space, women are central. And so while he put them on a pedestal, it's very much a idealized, eroticized, objectified pedestal that limits, I think, limits a person's understanding of what women can be. What do you also make of the context of age and also the insularity of the ballet world. I understand feeling seen the the power of a choreographer wanting to create based on your physique and your movement. And also, it still feels almost like they're they're just objects, though. Yeah, he would talk about sculpting and finding it, it. There are these like Pygmalion vibes happening mm. that makes them feel much less like agents. And they were expected to do whatever he asked of them. And that was, I think, I, I can relate to that. That's thrilling to just feel like you can trust someone at the front of the ballet studio and they say, you, he, like, if the person at the front of the room says, this looks impossible, you can do it. It looks dangerous. Do it anyway. And then you do it and then you succeed and how exciting that is. But there was such a level of control that he had over his dancers. And he really wanted them focused completely on ballet. And so 
from age 13, you're in this world where this one guy is at the top. And it's, you know, one thing I've been thinking about is it's not often that when you're in middle school or in high school, you meet someone who's judging you, who's going to determine the rest of your career. Like, yeah. usually, like, thank God. I, I thank God that my <laughs> middle school teachers <laughs> weren't like, all right, I will decide your future now. But that's like what happens in this world. What was the Balanchine body? How would you describe it? The way the Balanchine body is described is long legs, short torso, small head, which I find so interesting that he wanted a small <laughs> head, and very thin. And, you know, some it, it gets complicated because some people will point out that in a way he did like having some diversity in, in the bodies of his dancers. He allowed in tall dancers, which traditionally had these dancers had very hard time finding jobs in ballet and you know sometimes slightly curvier dancers that kind of thing but with that said that is what he was looking for and dancers really wanted to do anything they could to have that body i do remember since we were you know going through actively going through puberty i mm. remember girls i took dance with who were suddenly getting boobs and butts and that became a problem yeah one person i interviewed was saying how men as they boys as they turn into men in the ballet world it's like a great thing they develop these they become more built because they're these elite athletes and they're becoming the role of the prince that is like the traditional mm -hmm. role of a ballet dancer who's a guy. And girls, as they become women, the whatever's happening to you during puberty, it's like that is not desired. You basically want to look as prepubescent as possible. And which is weird when you think about it. Like, why do we want a stage full of like grown men and women that look like girls dancing together? That's weird. But it it is like so accepted in our culture, even outside of ballet. And I think that just adds to the pressure. The Balanchine body and also these these both these body standards and this embodiment of an idealized femininity that the ballerina represents. Is it also inherently white? Yes, I think ballet is based around this idea of white femininity. And so much of the ballet world holds on to these extremely racist ways of thinking about what is desirable. And that comes to the body expectations about like what kinds of bodies you want both in terms of like what we've been talking about and also these ideas that get circulated around the bodies of people of color especially black dancers but dancers with all kinds of backgrounds these these ill-formed ideas like that oh black dancers don't have arches that are as high or black dancers don't have these types of extensions we want. They're false and they're really harmful, but there are lots of black dancers. There are a lot of dancers of color who, for whom ballet is an identity and that puts them in a terrible and unfair position of trying to 
deal with these two identities that, you know, and be in a world that has historically just been telling them we don't want you. But yeah, it's it's so ingrained and it's something that dancers have been talking a lot about lately. It needs to be discussed way more also. Like it's a huge problem. And and also, I mean, when it comes to like skin color, there are companies doing blackface around the world at times, which is wild to me and defending it. There are instances of directors just not just wanting people to match and wanting everyone to be as pale as possible. And in ballets like Swan Lake and Giselle, like directors in the recent past, <laughs> Liz's current going to black dancers and asking them to like powder their skin so that they look whiter. It's it's totally erasing who they are. It's so harmful. It just creates this hostile environment that should be embracing incredible artists. Yeah, it 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 feels so I mean <laughs> the the racism of it, yes, absolutely. And if we were thinking about an art form, like how limiting that like, oh, well, everybody has to match. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> we're not putting together an outfit here. <laughs> like, yeah, we have a bit more <laughs> imagination. We're not an outfit. Yeah. <laughs> That's so true. It is so limiting to the art form. And it's it's so it gets that sort of matching, I think, gets so blown up as like something that's important to like making patterns on the stage. But that's not what ultimately moves people. It's the movement. It's the dancing. It's the storytelling. And also, like, how amazing is it to see bodies that we recognize as our own doing this incredible movement that is so beautiful and so moving and and so empowering? And that's what's interesting. I think, like, in a lot of ways, ballet can feel kind of disempowering when it perpetuates these problematic <laughs> attitudes of all kinds. But also dancing it is so empowering and exhilarating. And watching it even is, I'm continually surprised that going to a performance of ballet affects me as much as it does. And I didn't go to performances of ballet for years because I kind of left that behind. But it's a powerful art form. And it's it's worth finding a way to like hold on to that and let that flourish. And lots of dancers are doing that. Like that is, there are so many people actively working on that. I wonder what ballet at large would look like if the ballerina got a break from that pedestal, you know, because mm. up on that pedestal, her power is undeniable. You can see her strength and she is doing, you know, these unthinkable moves, but it's she can only go so far. Right. Absolutely. Oh, that's yeah. Break from that pedestal. Doesn't that sound great? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I'm scared of heights. I don't, don't want to fall off the edge. <laughs> Me too. You have to get really high because you get lifted a lot as an answer. Ah, yeah, absolutely. So what have you gleaned from reporting out this story on Balanchine 
these iconic dancers and this cultural legacy, how can that inform where ballet is today and where it maybe needs to go? I think in terms of where ballet is today, oh, there's so many directions you could go with that, different ways that it needs to be more inclusive. And we haven't even really touched on too, like Balanchine's ballets, partly because of this whole, you know, feeling about women that he has is like super heteronormative also. And like, su- like very much based in this very binary concept of gender. And then with someone like Balanchine actually talking about some of these more problematic sides alongside his incredible artistry. And that's what I wanted to do in this podcast is actually try to do both. Like it's not a takedown. It's not a propping up. It's just looking at this guy and looking at his work. And I one thing that happens with young dancers and with students who are training in ballet and learning Balanchine choreography, learning Balanchine style, is there's all this oral history and oral tradition and storytelling around who Balanchine was and what made his art great and what he was like to work with and what he was like as a person. But there are a lot of stories that get left out. And so there's like this incomplete oral history that gets passed down that's really focused at emphasizing his genius and like this gift that he left for a ballet. And so then it's it's not history, it becomes incomplete. Our next guest is very much invested in getting those left out stories back into ballet history and also envisioning ballet's inclusive potential. Aaliyah Baker is a multi-hyphenate creative and dancer and is in the process of staging her own queer black ballet called Queer Dance. Queer is a variation on queer coined by E. Patrick Johnson that refers to both queerness and race. Aaliyah originally choreographed Queer Dance as part of her master's thesis project and also as a part of contextualizing her lived experiences as a Black, queer, elite ballerina. I don't know that I specifically picked ballet or it kind of picked me. (laughs) I mean, I knew from a pretty young age, like four years old, I probably said like I was going to be a dancer and a fashion designer. Those were like my dreams when I was a little kid. And I pretty much never let go of those desires. And I think around the time when I was 11 was when I started to be in sort of pre-professional programmings and I was dancing six days a week. You know, I went away for high school to dance at a pre-professional program where we danced in the morning, had an abbreviated school day, then went back and danced in the evenings and danced all weekend. So not only was I dancing all the time, but I was probably watching dance videos if I wasn't at the studio rehearsing and subscribing to like dance magazine and all the publications that would come out and really just completely immersed and obsessed and and wanting to know everything I could about dance in general and ballet specifically. Could you describe a little bit of what the kind of classroom and studio environments were like as you were coming up in ballet? 
Yeah. So I was pretty lucky. I, I was at a couple of different studios from probably like four to 11. And then around 11, I, I switched to a school called Raleigh School of Ballet. And it's in Raleigh, North Carolina. It still exists. They had a really wonderful, loving, supportive environment, but it was also quite rigorous. I was for quite a bit, like one of the only black students in the studio. We really were kind of few and far between there. But again, I was just so hyper-focused on trying to dance and trying to get better and really, you know, enamored with the older dancers who were, you know, doing the lead roles. And I just wanted to be just like them and kind of grow up and be able to be, you know, a lead role in a ballet. And I was there till I was about 15. And then I went to another studio. That's when I moved away to train even more intensely at Pittsburgh Ballet Theater in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Did the environment change at all once you were in Pittsburgh? Yeah, it was definitely a completely different environment because in Pittsburgh, I think just the overall caliber of dancer was like much, much higher and we were working so, 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 so hard. So that's when things like, you know, injuries come in and burnout came in. And I just remember towards the end of my time there, when I was graduating from high school, where most of us, you know, the goal is to kind of go through these pre-professional training programs to have entry into a professional company at like 17, 16, 17. I remember still loving dance, but knowing that I was very tired because I had been performing at this level since I was 11. <laughs> and I was like, I need a break. So I, I went to college for four years. It was amazing. I danced the entire time I was at college. I went to Duke University. And at the time it was a very small dance program, but mighty. We had amazing, loving, wonderful teachers that really, like, I feel like I really flourished in that environment. And leaving school, I got a scholarship to go dance for the summer. And I was encouraged to go do like a training program with Alonzo King in, in the Bay Area. And I got offered um, the opportunity to go take classes with Oakland Ballet. And from there, I got a contract with Oakland Ballet. So I didn't actually have to audition, <laughs> which was kind of amazing um, because auditions suck. <laughs> but yeah, it, it kind of, it was pretty fantastic that I, someone saw me perform and then was like, oh, you're interesting, come take class. And then from from taking class, I got offered a, my first apprenticeship, you know, professional contract, and I was on my way. Yeah. Well, connect the dots for me between this, these formative experiences that you're having in dance and your thesis research around Black queer ballet. Yeah, I think the biggest thing in the ballet space was always that I was Black, and that was enough difference that I didn't need another thing to be different, I guess, in that space. And then I also did a lot of work with contemporary modern companies out there. And in the contemporary modern companies, I worked with an amazing woman who is a lesbian. And like on our first little coffee date, you know, it was like, oh, so are you queer? And I was like, I mean, I'm maybe I'm figuring it out. <laughs> but like I was in this community of like white queer women, but not that many dancers of color. So it was, my life felt very mm. fragmented for a while while I was in the Bay Area. And I think 
part of my work out there was always trying to kind of bring the pieces together so that all of the intersections could feel seen and, you know, realized in, in one place and not me just like having different parts of my life in, in different areas. Towards the end of my time in Oakland, when I was deciding to go to grad school, I started teaching a class called Ballet for Black and Brown Bodies. It kind of came out of the fact that I was doing a lot of different work in the community there. And people kept saying, oh, you're a dancer. I've always wanted to dance. I've always wanted to take ballet classes. Do you think you could teach me how to do it? Oh, you know, I'm non-binary or I'm trans or I'm Black and I've never felt comfortable going to some of these other studios that offer classes. You know, would you teach a class and, you know, for adults? And then the class was this really lovely, beautiful community space of all of these different types of people coming together to focus on people of color, coming together to kind of like live out our ballet fantasies. It was so amazing. And really, it's so exciting to watch people tackle things that maybe they've always wanted to do and were a little scared and kind of see how they're, how they become like emboldened to just really fully live out their dreams and try these different things and improve and like be proud of themselves and walk differently in the world. That was the feedback I got from so many people that having a space where it was pretty, it was non-judgmental, you know, folks were at all different levels of training, all different abilities and, and they all felt welcome and we were cheering each other on in the space. And I was like, oh, what if ballet class was like this rather than being you know silent and just you know instructed to and never asked how it feels or what you think or you know questions are discouraged i feel like a lot of folks who were in class with me particularly in my adult classes were really kind of healing from like past dance traumas <laughs> that i had also experienced right so like i really resonated with some of the things that folks would tell me and i was like oh, okay what what can we do to kind of like you know cut the trauma out from the training from the jump. Like there's, there's probably a better way. Are you comfortable sharing any examples of the kinds of traumas that resonated with you? Sure. I mean, I don't think none of these to me, especially being like so enmeshed in the dance world is there. It's nothing like out of the ordinary, particularly for black dancers. So just like microaggressions all the time around, Oh, if you're, a black dancer, oh, you're you're so beautiful. Like I just watched you do like, you know, Nutcracker, but you're gonna go and dance with this modern company and roll on the floor. And I'm like, why? <laughs> like, and, and it sounds to say it that way, it makes it sound like, you know, I feel like one is better than the other. And, it, and I don't, I, I really love to do all of the types of dancing. But when I was a little kid talking about, I wanna do Swan Lake, why do you think I'm gonna take my shoes off and like, be in a contraction like with Martha Graham. Like it's just, I just didn't understand that. And it took me probably into my adult years to realize like, oh no, it's because people don't think black people can do ballet. There would be comments about, you know, my body type or even just the things people say to you when they're trying to be affirming, but really are kind of coded racist language. So black dancers are always strong and powerful and they want you to jump and turn. And I happen to be very good at jumping and turning. So it's almost as if I could never be seen as anything else rather than this like character role in a ballet, never really probably the primary princess because I wasn't like delicate or fragile or 
you know, feminine enough to be in that role. All I was was solid muscle and still constantly trying to be, to diminish myself and to be smaller because I was like, okay, if I can look more like this sort of archetype and if they could see me as fragile and delicate, then maybe, you know, I'd get more opportunities. Talk to me a little bit about that archetype of the ballerina, like, who who is a ballerina? What does she look like? Right. So the ballerina is as this like frail, thin, white woman who on one hand is supposed to be like the epitome of like ethereal womanly beauty. But on the other hand, it's also supposed to be kind of like asexual in a way. Like really they're supposed to be this like blank canvas for everyone to project their desires onto. And as a Black person, as a Black woman, you know, I'm constantly failing to be this sort of archetype, even if I had been sort of like a longer, you know, thinner body type naturally, I still would have failed because of the color of my skin and the fact that Black women basically womanhood and and whiteness are very (laughs) intertwined and enmeshed. And anything that deviates from that doesn't live up to that archetype. Like the literal white ballets, the act where all the dancers are white, all the costumes are white, and it's just hitting you over the head with like, this is what is beautiful and acceptable. Black dancers over time have been, and, you know, queer dancers over time have really been trying to like fit into that narrative and Often it just means that people's careers get cut short or they're not given the opportunities because they're just not deemed to be, you know, the epitome of classical beauty. And it's just been that way for hundreds of years, even though there are little glimmers along the way of like black folks and queer folks that have been in ballet, but that part gets written out of the histories that we know intentionally. I remember growing up being enamored with New York City Ballet. Like that was my company. I loved American Ballet Theater. And it was at the time when like Barishnikov were there and there were like all of these amazing stars too, you know, like in the 80s and 90s. But New York City Ballet was the company that I felt danced the way that I was interested in. And this is outside of like Dance Theater of Harlem, which was obviously like a beacon of hope for me. Dance Theater of Harlem did a lot of Valentine rep you know, at the time and was founded by Arthur Mitchell. So there was that direct connection too between those companies. And I, it makes me so upset sometimes when I think about the fact that I was responding because there was this sort of like jazz impulse and Africanist impulse, an impulse of Black American culture in the dancing and in the choreography and in the music that, um, no one was talking about like people really still don't talk about it a ton today like there are definitely some amazing scholars so Brenda Dixon Gottschild Teresa Ruth Howard or two that I will mention yeah I didn't know any of this as a child and I was 
and I had to really grapple with like, why do I love ballet? People are always telling me like, oh, it's what white people do. Like you should do jazz or you should do tap or you should do something else. And I was like, no, but like, this is the thing that I like and I enjoy and I, you know, I want to work at. And then lo and behold, I'm really responding to something that has all of these influences and impulses in it that come from people who look like me. So yeah, it's pretty messed up. <laughs> it's pretty messed up to have to defend your right to something that you know your people have helped to create and make popular. And yeah, Balanchine, brilliant choreographer, right? gets a lot of credit and I I in no way saying that he doesn't deserve to have some credit, but I think that citationality is important and the making when we teach the histories and we talk about like American ballet in the 20th century to not negate all of the influences that went into works that we love today and that still get performed all over the place. So like yeah. You know, he wasn't in a silo. He was working with all of these other artists all around the world. And it makes sense that all of those influences would be kind of wrapped up and presented in the work. And then in some instances, it's really like direct kind of citation, quotation, creation, if you will, sometimes of different dance moves and steps that end up in these ballets. And like, you know, I understand why we're like grappling and kind of making it plain that, yeah, Black American culture is in American ballet that we love. Contemporary ballet doesn't exist without Black American culture. So. Digging into the, the queering of ballet, this might be too narrow of a question, but in its sort of current or classical form, is ballet only queer-coded for men? So... <laughs> <laughs> ballet is queer just period like period point blank the end like it is queer it has always been queer it'll always be queer and you know it's operating on so many different levels and I don't necessarily mean that everyone who does ballet is queer like I'm not saying that at all but I'm saying that there's like a queer aesthetic there's queer sensibilities there's queer in the in the meaning of like doing things that are like odd or outside of the ordinary with our bodies, right? So like, it's it's just all wrapped up in there in addition to all the queer people who have like influenced it and shaped and molded it over time. I just want the ideas to be expanded. So like, I want there to be like gay, queer men. I want there to be lesbian and queer women. I want there to be trans folks and non-binary folks that don't really fit into any of those categories. I just want it to be a space where people can be whatever is true and authentic to them. And I think that in some ways, ballet has allowed folks who might not otherwise have had a place to express themselves to be kind of like under, under the guise of a little bit of safety in the form, right? Because they could perform maybe in a way that felt like the ways that they wanted to move and just offered an outlet. But I think that there are other ways that really the sort of rigid male, female, gender binary still is super limiting in how people view ballet and what they're able to see. And also like sometimes what folks feel like they're able to do in the studio and put on the stage or even how, how we teach classes, like, 
there's so much gendered language and practices that happen within the studio oftentimes that again from a very young age set children up to go like in completely different directions and have completely different senses of self right so what I'm thinking about specifically is when there are not that many male dancers in a studio and they are kind of treated like the golden children regardless of like if they are as you know skilled as all of the other dancers in the studio they get a lot of opportunities people praise them it's like it's a really weird dichotomy of like that happening on the sort of microcosm of a studio where like maybe in in the broader world they're probably they might get teased because they're doing ballet or dancing or things like that but i do know that like and i see it happening even sometimes in studios that i teach in that like yeah the the male dancers just get a lot of encouragement and they have a lot of opportunities and they get scholarships and all of these things. And then, you know, they feel empowered through the practice where a lot of women and young girls are really disempowered through the practice in, in, in a weird way. It's like maybe they feel powerful in their ability to execute these steps and be amazing dancers, but don't feel powerful to speak up for themselves or don't feel powerful to, offer their own ideas forward in a rehearsal or to be a leader in a space, you know, very different things are taught from a young age that really manifest into, you know, not having that many women in charge of companies, major companies, and, you know, having a lot of male directors, artistic directors and choreographers being celebrated. And, you know, there's not a lot of equity there yet. I know, again, people are working so, so hard to make a change, which is exciting to me. And I really hope to be a part of that change. So, yeah. What then does Black queer femme ballet mean to you now, kind of at that intersection of those identities? For me, it's definitely like a claiming of a femininity and a delicacy that has been sort of denied to me as failing to reach this like, you know, white ballerina archetype, right? So it's claiming my space to express femininity in a way that makes sense to me. It's claiming the traditions and the lineages of Blackness that exist in the medium and that really rejecting this idea that ballet is just for white people. It's just a European art form. That's all that's influenced it. There's nothing else. You know, it really is a complete rejection of that because I know the truth. I know that even before the like 1500s, like there were African folks who were influencing, you know, court dances and things that were happening and the music. So like, I know that there is still a lot of history to be unearthed around people that I share some ancestry with that have influenced and shaped the form. And then I can point to more recent examples like Josephine Baker and Catherine Dunham of folks that have worked with and worked outside of and beyond and stretch the medium to a place where it is today. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a claiming of that as like ballet as mine too. And then in terms of the, the queerness, I would say it's just sort of a permission to be this complex being that is not motivated by, you know, heteronormative desires within the form that wants to perform stories that are not just the like, you know, 
swan saved by the prince or really like I just don't need a prince at all like I just don't need that (laughs) at all in the work that I want to do I'm not you know I I still go see those ballets and I still love to watch people perform them you know for what they are these technical you know feats and beautiful fairy tales of one kind but I also really want there to be space for other types of folklore and fairy tales within the form and things that are exist outside of like a heteronormative lens so that's that's a really long answer (laughs) for for how it exists it's really just basically me reconciling and sticking claim to this form as something that comes from you know lines of people who are more like me than they are different and we can also be public about it it doesn't have to be under the radar it doesn't have to be hidden it doesn't have to be it's not a contradiction to me Mm. where a lot of people might be like oh black queer ballerina like that doesn't make sense and I'm like no it actually makes perfect sense and there have been many people before me who claim those identities and there will be hopefully many many more people after me who claim those identities and we can be okay with that Unladies, I am honestly shocked that we have gotten to the end of an episode on ballet, and I don't think I employed a single dance pun. And I would like a gold star for that. It did take restraint. And dancer and ladies, I know y'all are out there and I would love to hear from y'all. Yes, this focus on ballet and ballerinas, please share your stories and thoughts. But if you are in any kind of dance at all and listening to this has gotten you thinking about things, I am all ears. You can send voice memos and emails to hello at unladylike.co or you can DM me on Instagram at unladylikemedia. And now that you're caught up on Unladylike, you gotta go listen to The Turning. Thank you so very much to its host and producer, Erica Lance, for coming on the show. Listen, The Turning is exquisitely produced. It is deeply reported and so powerful. You can also follow Erica on Twitter at EJ Lance. Thank you as well to Aaliyah Baker. And guess what? Y'all can help Aaliyah bring queer dance to life and support queer black ballet. It will have its premiere in Berkeley, California, which just seems fitting for, you know, the Bay Area being my queer home and the place where I came out to the world and came into myself. So (laughs) I think it just feels perfect that that's where I get to showcase the performance work first. And yeah, we're raising money right now to help support the process so that I can really take my ethics and live them through my art so that means like paying dancers a living wage and covering their travel costs and housing costs and things like that yeah i'm really excited about that and i'm thrilled that this project actually has connected me to lots of great people where i can kind of talk about ballet and blackness and queerness all at once which is just kind of the dream of my life (laughs) For more info, check out Aaliyah's website, aaliyahbaker.com. You can also follow her on Twitter and Instagram at ABCs. That is A-B-S-E-E-S. And if you want to support the podcast arts, please consider becoming an unladylike 
patron for $5 a month. You get full-length interviews with Erica, Aaliyah, and other featured guests, as well as an ad-free bonus episode every single week. Just go to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. Your support means the world. Unladylike is a Starburns audio production, executive produced, written, and hosted by me, Kristen Conger. Our senior producer and sound engineer is Aristotle Acevedo. Catherine Caligori is our associate producer. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week, my little swans. Starbands Audio, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.